I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, our topic today is the rise and fall of the teaching profession. And can I just say that as the sole non-full-time academic who participated in this conversation, wow. (laughs) I'm assuming the wow is like, Jack, so many smart observations. (laughs) Well, that goes without saying, of course. (laughs) But actually, the wow was more like, you know, I know all this stuff. I've been following the all the conversations about the state of the teaching profession and I've weighed in my myself about how the, you know, the real sort of cratering of teaching morale isn't just uh, a present day problem, but goes, you know, goes back. It has its roots in the Obama era of education reform. But the the breadth of the study that we are about to talk about, really, it did take me, it did take me aback. Yeah, it's not a hopeful conversation, uh, per se. So I guess we should give warning to people out there listening that if you are looking for a rosy portrait of what's happening and what has been happening uh, to the teaching profession over time, you may want to just go back to the archive and find one of our fun episodes and listen to that. But for the rest of you, I think this is a really important episode uh, and is one that I think not only helps explain the kind of crossroads that we're at right now with the teaching profession, but will maybe also give activists and educators and educator activists um, just a little bit more uh, grist for the mill as they are making the case for making teaching sustainable uh, now and in the future. We're going to be hearing from Matt Craft and Melissa Arnold Lyon, also known as Mimi Lyon, and they're going to be talking about their paper, The Rise and Fall of the Teaching Profession, Prestige, Interest, Preparation, and Satisfaction Over the Last Half Century. Matt has never been a guest on the show before, but Mimi has. And why was that, Jack? Nice segue, Jennifer, uh, because she was one of the winners of our graduate student research contest. And this is, I think, our last opportunity to plug that. So if you are a graduate student and you are working on a thesis or dissertation in education, we want you to submit your work to the contest. Um, What does that entail? Not a lot. Uh, go to haveyouheardpodcast.com backslash contest, or you can just go to the regular landing pages and click the contest link, and it'll give you everything you need to know. But basically, we just want a 200 to 300-word description of your research and two sentences about why you think it belongs in a podcast. Get that to us by January 31st, and we'll then notify people who have made the next round, and we'll ask them to submit a little bit more to us at that point. But this first hurdle is a very low one indeed, more like a curb than a hurdle. And once you enter and win, then you get the possibility of not just being on that initial episode, but someday returning 
to <laughs> over to, and over over and over to star in an episode devoted to learning more about your important research. Okay, now to our guests. Matt Kraft is an associate professor of education and economics at Brown University. Melissa Arnold-Lyon, also known as Mimi, is an assistant professor of public policy at the Rockefeller College of Public Affairs and Policy at the University at Albany. Together, they are the authors of a new paper that looks at the state of the K-12 teaching profession. And what they find in a sentence is this... Quote, the current state of the teaching profession is at or near its lowest levels in 50 years, end quote. That sound you're hearing is an alarm going off, or at least that should be the sound you're hearing. Take, for example, the drop in the number of applicants for teaching licenses. Mimi says that that data point alone should be cause for real concern. I just am always shocked when I look at the Office of Title II data This is like federal data on new teacher licenses, and it's dropped by about 30% since 2006. So in 2006, there were 320,000 new teacher licenses. In 2020, there were only 215,000 new teacher licenses. This is good federal data, you know, and we haven't done anything to it except for just download it from the internet. And it's out there for anyone to see. And it just shocks me that I do kind of wonder, why are more people not worried about this? So how worried should we be then? Matt says that is exactly the question that he and Mimi set out to answer. This paper is all about trying to understand where we are as a nation in terms of the health of our teacher workforce and whether or not the constant stream of headlines about teacher shortages and teacher turnover and teacher burnout is an ebb and flow of the norm or we're at a uniquely challenging moment and whether or not we've ever been in a context like this before so that we can kind of parse the seriousness or lack thereof, you know, all the things that we're hearing. As for the answers they found, well, I'll let Matt do the honors. At the end of the day, The answer is we are in a very dire moment in historical perspective across four different primary measures of the overall well-being of the teaching force, their prestige, interest in the profession among students, preparation to enter the workforce among college students, and satisfaction on the job for actual teachers all point in the same direction, that those measures are at or near their lowest level in 50 years. The common patterns are just so striking and overwhelming. And frankly, I think Mimi and I were both kind of taken aback by how consistent these patterns were across more than a dozen different unique data sources. Okay, Jack, so I know we've barely started hearing from our distinguished guests, but I feel like we have to pause here just to bring to life what we were talking about as far as the kind of visuals of this paper. So it's 68 pages long, and many of those pages are devoted to graphs. And I'm really not exaggerating when I describe many of these graphs as having a decided ski slope effect. (laughs) 
And so I was wondering if you could just assist with our listening audience that cannot see what we're looking at and just paint a picture of what we're seeing here. Feels like a Rorschach test, but uh, let me give this a shot here. Okay, so uh, I'm looking at these figures and some of them go down and then up and then down. Some of them go up and then down. Some of them go down, up, down, flat, but none of them, let me check here, click, click. Oh, oh there's one that goes up and that is expenditures. <laughs> that's, not, that's not really what we're talking about here, but all of the ones that uh, tell us something about teacher prestige, teacher pay, teacher career satisfaction, basically that tell us something about the profession. Those are a really grim set of graphs, right? These are grim graphs. Uh, and, and that sounds like the fifth house in Harry Potter. And that's where I think Matt and Mimi are going to be sent by the sorting hat. A sorting hat, for our listeners who don't have a PhD in Harry Potter studies, is the magical hat that Godric Gryffindor used a thousand plus years ago to decide which student should go to which of the four Hogwarts houses. Anyway, back to our guests and their research. By tracking data over time, they were able to chart how these four interrelated constructs, prestige, interest, preparation and teacher satisfaction flow and ebb over a half century. And what they found was pretty remarkable. Across every measure, they saw a rapid decline in the 1970s, a swift rise in the 1980s, two decades in which things stayed pretty stable, and then beginning around 2010, a sustained drop. Now, if you're thinking that this all sounds very academic and statistical, Mimi says that the measures they sifted and sorted through actually correspond to the professional career cycle of a teacher. When you ask people if they think teaching is prestigious or if they want their kids to become teachers, do they say yes? And then we kind of think about the next step in the cycle of a person deciding to enter the teaching profession, which would be, is a student interested in teaching? And so we look at whether or not high school seniors or college freshmen say that they expect a career in teaching. And then we keep moving forward and we look at, okay, do people actually take the steps to prepare to enter teaching? Do they get a teacher license and do they get a degree in education? And then we keep going and look, okay, when teachers are on the job, are they satisfied? Are they happy? But on each of our different constructs that we're trying to kind of trace and explain how they work together, we always have more than one measure and we're always finding these really consistent patterns. Now, the original project that Mimi and Matt embarked on was focused mainly on the drop in the prestige of the teaching profession. But the more they looked, the more they understood that there was a bigger and more serious story here. In the paper, we didn't actually start off really thinking about it in that way. We weren't totally sure how everything would work together, but we kept seeing these consistent patterns. We found them so striking that we felt like, okay, we have a bigger thing here. And we, we started to understand as we were writing the paper, this is really bigger than just prestige. This is the health of the profession that we're talking about. It's not just prestige. There's these other components and they're all kind of tracking in the same exact way with this decline in the 70s, increase in the 80s, then sort of plateau. And then since 2010, big decrease. 
This sweeping historical lens that Matt and Mimi brought to this project enabled them to not just see patterns, but to identify some reasons behind them. If you look at the charts measuring things like parent perceptions of teachers, student interest in teaching, and teacher job satisfaction, there is a clear ski slope effect that starts in the 1970s. And something else was happening in that era. Real wages for teachers were cratering. One of the most striking things that we see in our kind of very sophisticated eyeball test that we do in the back half of the paper where we take the graphs that we've created in the first half that track the overall status of the profession and see if there's other things that move in that same pattern is just looking at real teacher wages, particularly in the first four decades of our 50-year panel. And you see just striking drops in real wages in the 70s with stagflation that was going on in that period and measurable increases in the 80s. Matt says that while the story about wages today is more complicated, teacher pay is clearly one factor at play here. It's hard to think that salary is not part of the conversation. It probably is more complicated than that because there's not just a question of what the earned wage is for a teacher, but it's also relative to what they can earn outside of teaching. We think both those things matter. We think for many teachers, it's, can I pursue the profession I'm passionate about and still have a healthy middle-class lifestyle? That has not always been the case. And again, we are averaging across wide variation in some contexts, in some states, you know, teachers are, are really struggling working multiple jobs in many contexts. In other cases, not as much. But the macro point is that we think wages is part of the story here. So, Jack, I'm going to bring you back in because I can see that you are just exploding <laughs> with... Chomping at the bit is the phrase. ...to get one of your keen observations in. And you know what? I'm just going to let you do it. <laughs> well, uh, the the historian in me, I often talk about putting on a hat, but it's actually more of like a, it's uh, like having a conscience, right? It's in there someplace, and it's it's always just waiting to be let out. And as I am thinking about all of this stuff, I can't help but think about some of the significant changes over time that happen outside of the teaching profession that can't but have had a tremendous influence on some of the trends that Matt and Mimi are talking about here. So I'm going to limit myself to just three of them, but I would imagine that, you know, if, if you really gave me free reign here, and by the way, do you see how that metaphor uh, is in keeping with my chomping at the bit metaphor? A anyway, I'll I'll keep going. Um, the The three things that I want to mention have to do with expanding opportunities for women, uh, expanding college degree attainment, and the cost of college. So let me run through those really briefly. First, uh, as any historian of education can tell you, opportunities for women were pretty limited uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century, and in fact, for much of the first half of the 20th century, if not most of the 20th century, and that was great for schools, right? Bad for gender equity, great for schools, and that's because there was a tremendous discount on the labor of incredibly able, highly educated women, and as more opportunities opened up for women, 
right, later in the 20th century and into the 21st century, what happened was that schools could no longer count on getting a disproportionate share of ambitious, highly educated, extremely talented women, right? They were going into other fields as well. And I have no doubt that this trend has also affected fields like nursing, right? But it's definitely a factor here in shaping what's going on here with the teaching profession. Uh, a second trend that I think is in the background for all of this discussion is about an increase in the number of college degrees being granted over time. This one's a little less straightforward, um, but let me talk through it. So as more people get college degrees over time, it lowers the prestige value of having a college degree, right? This We saw the same thing with the rise of the high school diploma, that as we marched towards universal high school graduation, the value of the high school diploma declined, and we saw more and more people going to college to try to get a degree that distinguished them in the market. Well, a college degree was an entry requirement for licensed public school teachers long before it was a kind of basic entry requirement in other fields. And if we're thinking about teacher prestige here, Right? What we need to think about is the fact that in the first half of the 20th century, around mid-century, and even for much of the later 20th century, teachers were often the most well-educated people in their communities. And they still tend, uh, on average, to be more educated than community members as a whole largely as a result of the requirement that they have a college diploma, but they are much less unique, right, and distinctive in having a college degree. And that's just something that shapes the prestige of the profession, right? It's something that is going to have an effect on how people think of teachers. It's one of these macro trends outside of the profession. So this is so interesting. So basically what you're saying is that in order to understand what Mimi and Matt found, we have to consider all these changes that really have nothing to do with the teaching profession on the surface. Right. Exactly. Right. That have to do with gender equity, that have to do with, uh, you know, the pursuit of higher education largely for many people as a way of distinguishing themselves in the free market. And then the third point is about these trends in the cost of college. Uh, and that's, again, not entirely obvious why that would matter. Um, the way we need to think about this is that as the cost of college goes up over time, and uh, this is a graph that people can go out and grab, I'm sure, uh, on the internet, uh, one of the things that happens is that it changes the calculus for a lot of people as they are thinking about whether or not to become teachers. And what I mean is that if you're thinking about being a teacher in, say, 1955, to pick a completely arbitrary year, and you live in California, you could go to UCLA or UC Berkeley or any of the other schools in the UC system, in fact, any of the schools in the CSU system, and get a degree almost for free, uh, and then become a teacher and make a middle-class salary that is largely in step with what teachers are making today. Well, flash forward, and even at a state institution, you are not going to get a four-year college degree anywhere near free. 
right? Not without a scholarship, not without some sort of targeted support. The federal government has done a little bit in this regard via things like loan forgiveness, and some states have programs. But what we have seen there is that that has impacted the thinking of people as they are both evaluating whether or not to become teachers themselves, and they're thinking about their own kids, right? About whether or not it makes financial sense for young people to get a degree and then become a school teacher. And so this is yet another, right? These are three trends of what we could identify, I'm sure, as many trends outside of uh, the teaching profession tightly bounded that are absolutely shaping the way that the profession is perceived, the decisions people are making, um, the compensation that is necessary in order to attract teachers and keep them in the classroom. Well, Jack, I thought you did a particularly good job there of keeping it pithy, but I was kind of disappointed <laughs> that there were no more equine metaphors. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. Well, uh, uh, I'll be in the stable ready to head off to the races whenever you need me next. No more carrots for you, sir. It's all sticks. <laughs> Back to our guests. Now, if you're a devoted listener, you no doubt recall Mimi's inaugural appearance on this show. She was a runner-up in our grad student research contest in 2020 and was featured in an episode we called Contract Talk, New Research on Teachers Unions. In her prize-winning research, Mimi looked at the differences between states where teachers unions were weak or non-existent, like in Tennessee where she grew up, and where they are strong. Taking the same sort of sweeping look at history she used in her latest project, Mimi was able to see that the absence of unions translated into an absence of all kinds of progressive policies. It's episode 95. If you want to take a listen, I highly recommend it. So I wanted to know how Mimi sees the connection between her research on the benefits of strong unions and the current state of the teaching profession. Fundamentally, I'm drawn to this work because I think teachers matter. For a long time, we've known that teachers are the most important school-based factor that you can identify in terms of understanding student learning and student achievement. But even more than that, I was a teacher, Matt was a teacher. Fundamentally, I think that the people that are standing in front of the classroom and watching our kids matter. And so I'm interested in studying teachers unions as, first of all, the like collective action of teachers in relation to how they organize and then strikes in terms of when they get desperate, what do they do? You know, when you really feel like your hands are tied, what do you do? This paper is kind of taking another look and, and trying to say, why might they be so desperate? Matt sees a slightly more complicated story, that plunge in prestige, pay, and status of teachers back in the 1970s. Well, it led to a collective response. Teachers and the groups that represented them started to act like real unions. And Matt argues that that has had far-reaching consequences. Think, for example, about the narrative that took hold with a vengeance over the past couple of decades, that teachers' unions protect bad teachers. Part of what escalated this kind of focus on the individual teacher in the, the bad apple is teachers' willingness to kind of close ranks and focus on defending any member at any cost rather than focusing on, say, in medicine, establishing a set of professional norms that they took ownership over. You can think of examples of peer evaluation review or other styles of that. I think that that was in part a reaction to not having good options 
for collectively raising wages and establishing working conditions. So they had to just kind of be in solidarity no matter the context, but that that has created an opening for these kind of rubber room narratives that shaped uh, policy under Bush and Obama. So there are four main elements that you're looking at here, prestige, interest, preparation, and satisfaction. And it seems to me as an observer of educational reform that for the past several decades, reformers have essentially been saying, well, maybe there are some ways to gin up the prestige sometimes when we need to think Teach for America, right? Maybe there are some ways to gin up interest sometimes for some people. Think performance pay, bonuses, Maybe there are some ways to tinker with preparation, alternative certification. But it seems like teacher satisfaction has actually been a negative in the minds of reformers, right? That that's actually something that you want to work against. Now, I'm caricaturing ed reformers here, but right, think about the rhetoric about adult interests and how those are inherently in tension with the interests of young people. And I'm thinking of work that I've read by people like Matt Craft about teaching as a profession that people stay in and the returns to student learning of having teachers stay in the classroom. And one of the things that's required for that is teacher satisfaction. I'm wondering if you can help us and our listeners make sense of why teacher satisfaction became something of very little concern, or so it would seem, to policy elites, and why, if you agree with me, it's so important? I think that it's a really profound point that you make about teacher satisfaction as something to work against. I think that that's right. I think that there was a belief that came about that kind of pulled out of this notion that like teachers are really important. Teachers are the number one most important thing. We kind of know that empirically. We know that in the way that we feel. We know that teachers are important for shaping student experiences. But we also know that there's wide variability in terms of how good teachers are. So I think that a belief kind of spiraled out of that was like, oh, well, we just need to put a fire under the butt. Is that the term? (laughs) And get them moving, you know? That was the policy belief that if we could just, you know, get them motivated and figure out who the bad ones were, then we can just, you know, fire all the bad ones and the good ones will work harder and everybody's going to come together. I can't say why that belief took hold, but I think for a lot of people that belief really took hold and had power. The paper delves into all kinds of possible explanations for the historical patterns that Mimi and Matt identified, factors like pay barriers to entry, unionism. But Mimi says that it is impossible to make sense of the plunge in teacher status and prestige without understanding the rise of data-driven accountability. The fire that was put under the butt of the teachers was a lot of just like, what's a measurable outcome? So we kind of had these two pieces colliding, not necessarily intentionally, but they did. And then we sort of push teachers into this standardized testing world in a way that I think now looking back on it, people are realizing what happened and teachers are saying, this isn't what I wanted to do. And, and people who are potential teachers are saying, that doesn't look like something that's interesting to me. 
back to the question that Jack just asked about policy elites seeming to disregard teacher satisfaction, even as there's wide agreement about its importance, Matt says that to make sense of this, we have to try to see the world the way a policymaker might. If you ask any policymaker, do you want your kids' teachers to enjoy their job and be satisfied? I bet you we couldn't find a single one to say, no, I want them to feel kind of outside intense pressures and feel, you know, worried that they are at risk of being dismissed. And and that's really the climate that I want. We have a theory of action around how to improve the teacher workforce, and it's focused on micro-individual behavior of teachers in kind of isolation from their peers and the school systems in which they work. And then we say, okay, how can I develop a system that creates the most incentives, pressure, combination of both to have them act in a way that achieves an objective that we can measure, test scores? That theory of action Matt's talking about, well, it was aimed at improving teaching as a system, but it was individual teachers who felt those policy changes. The problem, I think, is that teaching is an interpersonal profession. And if we abstract away from thinking about teacher quality adhering in individuals and teacher quality adhering in a system, then I think that changes how we would view the past two decades of policy reforms. And using that change of framework, I think we we kind of see, well, policies that act on the individual may, in fact, in fact, I think we have evidence that they did shape individuals' experience and perceptions. We see evidence of declining satisfaction and increased concern about job security, but I think they've lost the forest for the trees in the ecosystem that teaching takes place in and the environment. And frankly, there's always been this hidden subsidy on top of the previous hidden subsidy of limited outside earning and job opportunities for women and people of color. The hidden subsidy that persists and we continue to enjoy is that many people are passionate about teaching as a job and they love it. And that subsidy is they want to succeed with their kids. And when we take that away, when we take away the ability or limit or constrain or pivot away from supporting teachers to feel like they are successful with their kids, then one of the key pillars of what keeps people there and draws people into it starts to crumble. Okay. As evidenced by the very title of this episode, the rise and more importantly, the fall of the teaching profession, we've got a big problem. So what to do about it? Mimi says that making teaching a job that people don't just want to go into, but want to stay in, starts with acknowledging what's gone wrong. There are structural issues in terms of the desirability and the health of the profession that we should be worried about. The prestige and interest and teacher preparation and job satisfaction are all moving in tandem because they're all working together and shaping each other. And so If we want to try to improve the health of the teaching profession, we have to think about this like ecosystem. You know, we have some hypotheses. We are hoping that this kind of sets an agenda to kind of pick up and take and test some of these hypotheses with these data sources that we've collected and discussed. But fundamentally, what we're trying to say is there's a problem. We don't know the solution. We wish we did. Here are some ideas. Let's keep digging, you know? And we think that there is a solution. We just have to work towards it and we have to be patient. 
as you've no doubt picked up on by now, this is not a feel-good paper. And yet, one of the lessons that our researchers took away from their review of the state of the teaching profession over the past 50 years is that history offers some hope and some lessons. Among them, fixing structural problems takes time. We want to kind of contextualize and think big and not be too dramatic and say, oh, you know, like there's nothing we could do because clearly we've been in a similar place before. The solution might be different this time around, but at least we think that there's taking that bigger picture look helps us to see that number one, the declines that we're seeing right now are not just from the pandemic. They're not just in relation to red for ed teacher strikes. They've been going on for longer. And both of these kind of like points in time very recently where teachers have had the opportunity to say things are not going well is not just a right now thing. This is actually a structural issue that has been building since about 2010. But on top of that, we've seen these issues before and we've gotten out of it. Change is slow. It's going to take time. It took us time to get here. But I think that if we can be patient, then there's light at the end of the tunnel. But we're going to have to make changes. Matt says that he's concerned that the debate about the state of the teaching profession is too often focused on the wrong things. It's asking kind of, are the folks that are there staying? And how many classrooms have we failed to even attract anyone, let alone someone qualified to staff that position? Those matter. We we don't want classrooms that are empty. But those things, you know, we can get distracted on the nuances of is the teacher shortage real or not? There's all this vitriolic debate. But for someone who knows that well, I say don't get drowned in that mess. Come up for air and just ask yourself, why don't we listen to teachers if they're telling us that we are in a uniquely challenging moment? I think we would if those were our own kids' teachers. And what type of teacher do we want in front of our own kids and in our nation's classrooms? In other words, seeing the gravity of the current challenges just in terms of teaching shortages or teacher morale that isn't that bad confines us to solutions that never address what precipitated the fall of the teaching profession in the first place. If we start from a value proposition, this entire paper is data-driven. But I think when we think about solutions and what direction we want this to go in, we have to be having a values-based conversation. And at least I would argue that we need to go beyond saying, whew, we don't have shortages. Like Just having classroom staff is not the bar we should be aspiring to meet. Having teachers say, well, I'm not, I'm not so burnt out anymore. Why isn't the bar that we should be selecting among a whole host of well-qualified individuals raising their hand to say, I can't wait to get in the classroom. I'm the person for the job. Now, it's going to take a lot of time to make that type of generational pivot, but isn't that what we want? A big thanks to our guests, Mimi Lyon and Matt Kraft. They are the authors of The Rise and Fall of the Teaching Profession prestige, interest, preparation, and satisfaction over the last half century. Definitely check that out. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about the current chaos in education policy land. We will also be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weed segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. Charter schools, are they public or private? If this sounds like an old debate, well, 
there's a new twist on it. If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a supporter. So Jack, listening to Matt and Mimi talk about the recent history of education policy in particular, I am so struck by how we've lived through what is a very coherent narrative, right? That, you know, we had to light a fire under the teachers and make their lives uncomfortable. And that was how we were going to sort the good apples and the bad apples. And when I compare that to what seems like the utter incoherence of our current moment, I, my head kind of spins a little bit, and I'm going to give you an example. So Glenn Youngkin, everybody thinks of him now as sort of the parents' rights guy. He's the one who got us started on this path that, you know, that the shape of education should be completely determined by the parents. Well, in his state of the state address, he announces that he's going to earmark something like $50 million for, wait for it, performance pay. <laughs> And so you have this weird landscape where you have some zombie policies of the past that reflect one way of viewing schools, usually in a very businessy lens, in a sort of system way. And then you have this other set of policies where we're moving really quickly to radically decentralize education and put the power and the money into the hands of individual parents. And I personally really, like, I'm having a really hard time making sense of this stuff. Maybe it's the former high school history teacher in me that is envisioning one of these, uh, you know, pop-out boxes in a, you know, ninth grade history textbook that shows you particular eras in world history. And one of the things that I remember saying to students is, right, these are not natural, right? It's not like geology where we can see like, look at these striations, right? Something happened here and it completely changed the nature of the rock of this period, right? That these are are human designated. Now, of course, you know, geological eras are also human designated, but those are mapped on to very real physical changes, right? There is no turning point in most cases for the shift from one era to another. And we are in a kind of blurry boundary line between the previous era and the next era. And there's a question mark there about whether the next era will emerge as we are seeing it in its present form, right? There are certainly activists who are seeing it emerge and fighting it. Now, they don't want to keep what previously existed, right? They're fighting for a different vision. And so I think the best way to think about this is that there is the kind of corporate reform, test-based accountability era, um, top-down, centralized uh, reform effort period, which you could say runs, you know, if you want to use a nation at risk as the beginning, you could say 1983 or the Charlottesville Summit 1989 or um, Bill Clinton 1992. You could even make it, you know, NCLB 2002 when it gets signed into law. 
And so this era is anywhere from 10 to 30 years in length, and it's not over yet. Right? There are still people who are fighting for things like teacher performance pay, for test-based accountability. Right? That certainly isn't dead. Um, for charter schools uh, and other forms of market-based competition uh, within a kind of framework of public education. And then there is this you know, emerging new era, and I think Probably the easiest date to put there would be the start of Betsy DeVos's term as Secretary of Education. And it, it may run some number of years or decades into the future, and it remains to be seen if that will be an era of education policy. But right now, we inhabit that area where there's overlap. And there's contestation, and there are different policy actors who are jockeying to enact a kind of new vision. And I'll say that, you know, if we think about it this way, it is not surprising that we see groups like the Gates Foundation and the Walton Foundation rallying around the next generation of assessment and accountability, right? Because they want to keep that vision of the world, but they know that the previous vision is unsustainable, right? That it would it would lose out. And so Gates and Walton, which were kind of on different sides uh, for, you know, the past couple of decades, are now very much trying to do what I think a lot of self-styled progressives who wouldn't want anything to do with either of those foundations were fighting for for the past couple of decades. So it's making for some strange alliances, and it is creating a lot of kind of mixed messaging if you don't know why particular actors are doing what they're doing. Um, and and to the point about Glenn Youngkin, right, he's he's clearly trying to satisfy different constituents, tr clearly trying to keep different kinds of power sources in his corner behind him. And that makes for some sometimes incoherent policy. Well, Jack, once again, you have set the stage perfectly for me to introduce the topic of our In the Weeds segment <laughs> for our Patreon subscribers. I know, what are the chances? What are the odds? Just <laughs> always happens that way. Well, one of these sort of zombie questions has reared its head once again, and that would be the question of, are charter schools public? Or are they private? And it is coming up in a way that I think a lot of folks would be really surprised by that you have this quite substantial coalition of conservative groups arguing that actually, you know what? Charter schools are private. In fact, the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to the students who attend them. And so in the weeds, we are going to try to make sense of one of the, this is just a classic sort of borderlands question and and all sorts of people making interesting claims. So if this interests you, you want to know more because it's a big question, just head to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and you'll see a list of all the extras you can get by throwing a few dollars our way each month. And of course, that's not the only way you can support the show. Cue Jack. <laughs> For those who don't want to cross that border, uh, there are plenty of ways to support the show and to keep up the health and robustness of the free lands that uh, most of us inhabit here. Uh, so if you are a regular listener and are not yet getting automatic downloads because you subscribe to the show, well then 
go on right now and make sure that you do that so that the latest episode always appears on your phone or your tablet or wherever you're listening. Um, go ahead and give us a rating and write something nice while you're out at it. I think that that helps people discover the show. Um, share the show. That is the, I think the single most effective way of growing our audience base is when people say to friends, colleagues, family members, this is an episode that I think you're going to really like and you might want to consider subscribing. I know that I ask friends, trusted friends, what I should be listening to. Um, sometimes I'll give it a listen and I will not continue and we accept that risk. <laughs> um, but, but share the latest episode or your favorite episode with whoever you might think uh, would enjoy it. And then, of course, uh, the Have You Heard mailbag is always a place full of treats, rarely uh, a place of tricks. And we appreciate hearing from you, whether it's just to let us know what you thought of the latest episode or to suggest an idea for another one. Although we get so many great ep episode ideas from you that can't necessarily promise we will fulfill uh, the, our end of the contract on that one. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs>